This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 44, Deuteronomy chapters 12 through 15. If you thought that early monotheism was a religion of tolerance, you might think differently after reading chapter 12, where Moshe orders the Jews to quote... pagan holy sites in the land of Israel, and that, eventually, God will apprise the people of where he would like the Jews to build him a house, a temple, where people can bring their near offerings and, quote, eat there before the presence of Adonai your God. This is what scholars call the centralization of the cult, or in more modern, less academic terms, a monopoly. That is, the Jews are now no longer allowed to bring near offerings at any old high place or sacred site or holy tree or wherever, but at one location, because near offering at one location brings people together. And this is not the only limit Moshe is going to apply to the Jews. Moshe also prescribes where you can eat tithes or drink new wine or shining oil or the firstborn of the herd or a vow offering or a free will or offering or a contribution. In other words, do it at the temple. But there is also an acknowledgement that folks like their meat and that they will want to eat a lot of meat a lot of the time. And so folks are allowed to slaughter locally, but they cannot eat the blood. In chapter 13, Moshe reminds the Jews about compliance with the mitzvot, about how they are supposed to follow the instructions explicitly. And even if a prophet or dreamer of dreams who actually proves to be accurate in their predictions, but then wants to lead you away from God, you should not listen to that person. And you should put that naysayer to death. And if some horn-swoggling ne'er-do-wells move into Rock Ridge and turn the town upside down, worshiping all kinds of abominations, you are to find them and... Utterly destroy them and everything in that town. Spare nothing from the fire. And, since we're talking about abominations and other such inappropriate behaviors, Moshe warns the Jews not to adopt other local traditions like self-mutilation or putting a, quote, bald spot between your eyes for a dead person. Or eating foods favored by the locals. What a great day for singing our new song. Good time. Good time. Great taste. Great taste. That's why this is our place, our place. The good time, great taste of McDonald's. Or eating carcasses. Or eating a kid in its mother's milk. And if you weren't paying attention the first or second or third time, all the tithes and new wines and shining oils and firstlings and seed sowings need to be eaten in God's selected location. But if you're not able to transport your tithes or new wines or whatever because federal regulations prohibit the transport of foodstuffs, then you can bring the equivalent in cash and buy whatever you need at the temple duty-free. And for the Levite who has no land inheritance or the stranger, orphan, or widow who are effectively dispossessed, 
you are to set aside for them and look after them too. And since we're talking about progressive social policy, chapter 15 begins with a novel idea, the Shemitah, or release. All debts to fellow Jews are forgiven or cancelled in the seventh year, which truly is a great idea, but easily abused by folks with liquidity in the sixth year who might simply stop making loans in the run-up to the Shemitah year. Moshe warns and assures loan givers that their continued largesse will be rewarded because, quote, the needy will never be gone from amid the land. And as for undentured servants, the same seven-year rule applies, but not only are you to set the servant free, you are to provide an appropriate severance package because, quote, a serf you were in the land of Egypt, and Adonai your God redeemed you, therefore I command you this word today. But if your servant serf slave does not want to leave, then he can stay. But it's a permanent arrangement now, one free from the release for all times. And as for the firstlings of flock and herd, if they are blemished or defected in some way, which invalidates them for near offering, do not take them up to the temple, but have a barbecue at home. But don't eat the blood. So, there's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it. I had mentioned in episode 41, Deuteronomy repeats many of the regulations from previous books of the Torah, but here, when it comes to social justice... Yeah, the numbers all go to 11. Look, right across the board. Oh, 11, oh, 11, and most of 11, and then... Amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean and so, we have the concept of the Shemitah, or the release. This iteration of the seventh-year release does not allude to fields laying fallow. Here, it's all about forgiveness of debts and the manumission of Hebrew slaves. And along with this is a strong message about withholding loans from the needy in the run-up to the release, which reminded me of some discussion around the turn of the third millennium, nothing of which actually came to pass, but it had some momentum back then. I'm referring to the Jubilee 2000 Coalition. The Jubilee, or Yovel, is not the same as Shemitah. It's the year at the end of seven Shemitah cycles, but many of the central features are similar, such as manumission of Hebrew slaves and debt forgiveness. So as the year 2000 approached and folks stocked up on water and flashlight batteries in fear of the Y2K virus, go ahead kids, you can Google it if you don't believe me, uh, a movement coalesced in Britain to seek the forgiveness of what was then called third world debt. Folks like Bono, Quincy Jones, Muhammad Ali, Bob Geldof, Yusun Endur, and Tom York took up the call. As stated at the website, jubileedebt.org.uk. Jubilee Debt Campaign as part of a global movement demanding freedom from the slavery of unjust debts and a new financial system that puts people first. Inspired by the ancient concept of Jubilee, we campaign for a world where debt is no longer used as a form of power by which the rich exploit the poor. Freedom from debt slavery is a necessary step towards a world in which our common resources are used to realize equality, justice and human dignity. By calling for a reboot of the global debt infrastructure, it could give countries in the developing world a fighting chance to address vexing social problems, like endemic lack of education or healthcare. And besides, Jubilee 2000 was not calling for a complete erasure of all debt, just its radical reduction from a total of about $90 billion, that's $90 billion with a B, 
to about 37 billion. So yes, they were calling for about a 60% reduction, but still, $37 billion can buy you a lot of post-it notes. I'll put up a link to their site at thenextjew.com and at the Facebook page. But this call, as fair-minded and as fair-sounding it was back in 2000, and still is, deeply offended folks in the developed world, especially creditors and folks who rely on creditors for their income. Folks who already had a lot of money or would like to accrue a lot more of it. And their argument was a simple one. If you borrow money, it ought to be paid back. Never you mind the circumstances of the borrowing or the terms or whatever. It ought to be paid back and with interest. As Upton Sinclair said, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. The second reason commonly cited by opponents of debt forgiveness is the principle of moral hazard. Less overtly concerned with the bottom lines of creditors, these folk cite the welfare of the developing world as their primary concern. If you let these third world folk off the hook in repaying their debt to the IMF or other developed world creditors, then they might spend their money on silly things. And the thing is, you'd be practically encouraging their frivolousness because it was they who racked up all the debt in the first place, and now you're coming in and just erasing it. You're removing the notion of consequence from their moral calculus. After all, how will they develop properly if they don't learn that their behavior has repercussions? Except that, sometimes, forgiveness is actually the more economically sound decision to make, even if it goes against what is perceived to be fair. Now, take this example. Now, it's not an example of debt forgiveness, but it would probably offend all the folks who are tweaked by debt forgiveness and then some. In 2005, Utah, the state of Utah, undertook a project to eradicate homelessness in the state of Utah within 10 years. Called Housing First, the program has managed to reduce the number of identified chronically homeless individuals by 74% and is well on track to meet their goal. How did Utah do it, you wonder? They gave homeless people free apartments. They figured out that the cost of annual emergency room visits for the average homeless person was about $16,670. Then they priced out the cost of a free apartment with access to a full-time caseworker. That came to about $11,000. So, even if it is the right thing to do, which it is, housing the homeless actually costs Utah taxpayers less in the long run. And considering that, as reported by Amnesty International, there are more than five times as many vacant homes in the USA as there are homeless people, this is an idea that is easily scalable. But hey, why should we forgive these poors and give them free stuff? I work hard to pay my mortgage. How can distributing handouts to takers benefit me? Deuteronomy does not go into the macro or microeconomic benefits beyond saying that it's an admirable thing to do, which, as MasterCard reminds us, is priceless. MasterCard. But one doesn't need advanced degrees in economics from the London School to acknowledge that, for example, living in a society where everyone has better access to healthcare makes everyone healthier. When your local emergency room is no longer used as a walk-in clinic, you can better allocate resources and help people more effectively across your healthcare system. Which is why, according to 2010 OECD numbers, Canada spends about $4,400 per patient on healthcare. 
and the U.S. spends about double. And more importantly, living in a society where folks can get out from under crushing debt, be it student loans or mortgage payments or medical costs, sets a tone about what is permissible in the market, which, despite grousing from some folks, is a net gain. But debt forgiveness, like raising the minimum wage, benefits even creditors in the long run, as folks who have more money in their pockets tend to spend it. This, even at the most basic level, stimulates growth, which is also a net gain. Duh! And besides, debt forgiveness also fosters a more ethical and fair society. Can you put a price tag on that? Or on a hug? The value of that... Priceless. MasterCard. Will there be folks who will abuse this opportunity? Absolutely. But the harm caused by isolated cases of irresponsible six-year spendthrifts will be far outweighed by the benefits and gains employed by a vastly larger number of people. Even if 10% rack up debt recklessly, or 20 or 30%, knowing that the release will release them from it, there's still an overwhelming majority who will seize upon this chance to rebuild their lives and do better. And besides, it isn't like our no-debt-forgiving, supposedly free-market capitalist system provides any opportunity for abuse. I mean, no one abuses the existing system, not, no, not, one, not one person. And even if there are folks that, that do, I mean, how many would you say there are? You know, I don't know, maybe about 1%. And it wasn't like they behaved so irresponsibly that they nearly wrecked the global economy. I mean, that would just be preposterous. As always, you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T. Or at thenextyou.com, or you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes store, or at Stitcher Smart Radio, or at SoundCloud. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. You're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 45 on the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 16 through 19. Y'all come back now, here. Yeah?